Good morning, Westmount. Great to be with you. Good to see each, each one. Also, a special morning welcome to those who are joining us online. I want to encourage you as well, and uh, thanks for logging in. I trust that the Lord will encourage our hearts uh, together this morning. Appreciate the opportunity of uh, being here today and, Lord willing, next week as well. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews exhorts us, as he says, uh, looking unto Jesus and exhorts us to consider him, speaking, of course, of Christ. And so my intent for uh, today, as well as, uh, Lord willing, next week, is to um, consider two very powerful texts that come to us from the book of 2 Corinthians, um, books that are rather texts that exalt and and make much of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only will, those, will we see that those texts make much of Christ, but they also share in common providing a wonderful contrast by way of an exchange, highlighting changes, transformation that has come to, to you and me as followers of Christ. Some incredible things that have happened as a result of the, of the work and the person of the Lord Jesus. So I trust that as a result, our hearts will be encouraged and our fervor for worship will be stoked up uh, just a little bit more and we will be enabled to make much of Christ. So before we jump into our text, let's ask the Lord if he would help us and guide us to that end. Father, thank you for the opportunity to uh, come into your presence this morning. Uh, thank you for the one that we have been singing about the greatness of our God and the greatness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you, Holy Spirit, for your work in our lives and your desire to inform us and to inflame our hearts. And we pray that that would be our experience this morning. Uh, thank you that we can come apart and we can come into your presence of, of the God who is the, uh, the ever-faithful one. And we cling to that this morning. Uh, come into the presence of the God who is good. And the God who has us, his posture, that of reaching out to us and blessing us with the bounty of his grace and his mercy. Father, thank you for your disposition towards us as followers of yours this morning. Uh, Father, will you be gracious to us now as we look into your word by your Holy Spirit. Just make it real to us. Teach us. Move us, we pray. And uh, might we uh, just worship you a little more intently as a result of thoughts that we consider from your word today. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. This verse we're going to look at this morning is, is one that's familiar to many of us. Don't apologize for that. It's just that familiar texts uh, create a challenge for us to see things as it were for the first time. And so I get you to partner with me in that whole thing. Couldn't help but thinking as we look at this, uh, uh, say for example, Dennis and Valerie as they make their way back into the jungle and as they continue with their teaching. And having the opportunity, and it's not that we don't have anybody here in our city who's never heard the gospel, but having the opportunity to share the gospel and the truth of God's word for the very, very first time. And it's Howie Hendricks and his uh, uh, living by the book and challenging us how to study the Bible and this discipline of trying to look at it for the first time. So that's my encouragement to us this morning as we consider a familiar text. 
for some of us. Uh, not only will it be familiar to us, but it's a verse that comes to us in the, in the context of a, of a paragraph and, and in the context of a, of a larger section of this epistle that comes with very high praise. Uh, for example, one commentator writes that this passage is, and I quote, one of the most important expositions of Christianity in the Bible. Now, we don't pit Scripture against Scripture as to what's the most important, but that's an incredible statement. Another has written that this passage is one of the most difficult and important passages in the Pauline epistles. R.C. Sproul once said of our verse that we're going to look at that in his opinion was the most profound verse in the whole Bible. That's a pretty heavy-duty statement, isn't it? But I hope that when we're finished with it this morning, we'll conclude that the statement is one that is hard to argue with. It comes to us in 2 Corinthians 5, and so I invite you to take your Bibles or take uh, your phone and join me in the text of 2 Corinthians 5 as we read together. Our text is going to be verse 21, but by way of context, we'll read uh, this larger section that begins in verse 11. 2 Corinthians 5, and reading from verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And here's our verse. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the reading of God's word for us this morning. When I think of uh, this passage of scripture, I'm reminded of uh, one of the great hymns penned by Philip Bliss all the way back in 1874. Uh, it was actually uh, written as a Sunday school song. 
It says, sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see, wonderful words of life. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. We might be dating ourselves a little bit, but there's many of us here in this room that we've sung those words many times over. Wonderful words of life. Uh, I think of that song because in this passage that we've just read together, uh, we have some wonderful words. Even more specifically, we, we have some incredible truths that, that are linked to some wonderful words. For example, in our passage, we, we don't have the word substitution, but we definitely have the teaching and the truth of substitution. And we'll talk about that a little bit we don't have the word redeem, but we have the truth about redemption. We don't have the word, but we have the teaching of, of justification. The idea of us being declared right with God. We're going to talk about that as well. In our passage, we do have the word, and we do have the wonderful truth, therefore, about the doctrine of reconciliation. Now, that's just a brief summary of some of the truths that we find in our passage. It's a little wonder that someone might say that it's one of the most important expositions of Christianity. It's a theologically rich passage. Key doctrinal themes and truths that go right to the heart of the gospel. That gospel made possible because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beautiful words, wonderful words for sure. And while it is uh, one of the most important passages, expositions of Christianity, uh, it's also one of the ch challenging passages in terms of its difficulty and some of the interpretive elements that are found within the, within the passage. And rather than unpackage uh, that ent this entire section in one message or in one sitting, uh, I just want us to focus on the verse in this passage where the passage reaches its zenith, where it reaches its climax. And it comes here in verse 21. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And this whole passage, the apostle Paul is celebrating the effective work of Christ, the person of Christ and the work that he has accomplished. And here in this verse, we are reminded that as followers of Jesus, we have been changed because of the effective work of Christ. Because of the work of Christ, we are not who we once were. Because of the work of Christ, a major change, a major transformation has taken place. And a great change has taken place because of a great exchange. That's what this verse is talking about. We want to unpackage that just a little bit. It's a pretty succinct verse that contains so much rich teaching. Uh, the verse consists of just 15 words in the original text. Two major clauses that provide a contrast. Uh, two clauses that are presented in parallel truths. And two parallel clauses that need to be taken together in order to understand the significance of this work of Christ on our behalf. So the first truth that we celebrate this morning is that the work of Christ was effective because Christ was and is sinless. Uh, we have a reason to celebrate this morning because there's a man in the heavens who is perfect. Jesus, the God-man. 
Our text describes Jesus as the one who knew no sin. He knew no sin. Now, our familiarity with uh, the teaching of Scripture, we understand that this word know is not talking about an academic knowledge, but rather it's talking about a knowledge that we gain by way of experience. Uh, This idea of knowing, it relates to what we find in, in, in Genesis with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve in the garden... Pre-fall, God had given them the limitation that they could um, partake of all of the fruit in the garden with the one exception. They could not partake of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And after they did partake of that fruit, the text tells us that they knew they were naked. Uh, They experienced for the first time in their lives, for the first time they sensed Uh, this emotion of guilt and shame. Because of their disobedience to God, they ate from the forbidden fruit. For the first time, personally, experientially, the reality of shame and guilt was theirs. To know means to have personal acquaintance with. And this verse is saying that with respect to sin, Christ had none of that. He knew no sin. Now, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, and we understand that the writers of Scripture were writing under the, the authority, the control, being carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. And so this is God, by His Holy Spirit, affirming to us, Jesus knew no sin. He knew no sin. Now, this isn't the first time that God affirmed that Jesus, His Son, knew no sin. It reminds us of the gospel accounts, does it not? Uh, Which record for us Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. We're kind of shocked when we turn the pages in the gospel accounts and we read what the gospel writers tell us, that that God was the one who was initiating this great showdown that was to take place between Satan and Jesus in the wilderness. Luke tells us in his gospel, Luke 4 and 1, that Jesus was led by the Spirit, led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Matthew repeats that similar thought and adds to it as he says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And Mark, in his account, in his just straight shooting style, says the Spirit immediately drove him, that is, drove Jesus out to the wilderness this great momentous showdown between Jesus and Satan, it was God initiating the encounter. The encounter that would demonstrate that this one, Jesus, his son, would know no sin. New Testament summary of this reality is consistent as the Apostle John tells us in his epistle, 1 John 3 and 5, in him, that is in Jesus, is no sin. 1 Peter 2.22 says that Jesus committed no sin. He, he did no sin. And now here the Apostle Paul affirms he knew no sin. In him is no sin. He did no sin. He knew no sin. It's a staggering thought for us. Uh, you and I, every day of our lives, we are bombarded by sin. We are haunted by our sin. This idea that one could be sinless, it's just hard for us even to 
get our feeble minds around that wonderful truth. Uh, when we consider this encounter between uh, Jesus and Satan in the wilderness, it's helpful for us to remember that Jesus experienced the full arsenal of everything that Satan had to throw at him. Uh, Jesus in that wilderness encounter experienced the full intensity of Satan's attempts as he tried his hardest to bring Jesus down. Uh, he threw everything he had at Jesus. His curveball, his fastball, his knuckleball, his sidearm delivery. Anybody missing baseball yet? He, he, he endeavored to throw his hardest at Jesus. Satan doesn't have to try his hardest with you and I, you and me. Our threshold, we, we falter before we get to him throwing everything he's got at us. Jesus experienced the assault of Satan in a way that you and I never will. And that doesn't minimize the assaults that we experience, but Jesus experienced the full intensity of everything that Satan had to throw at him. He brought his A-game. Jesus knew no sin. God initiated that encounter between Jesus and, Jesus and Satan to demonstrate the reality of this truth that Jesus knew no sin. He was sinless. And here, once again, in the writings of Paul in 2 Corinthians, Paul is affirming under the control of the Holy Spirit, giving us, once again, God's affirmation that Jesus, his son, this one, our Jesus, our Savior, he knew no sin. It's a key orthodox teaching that's been held down through the centuries of the church, cardinal truth, Crucial truth, because one of the reasons that the work of Christ is effective is because Jesus was and is sinless. So we celebrate this morning that there's a man in the heavens who is perfect, who is sinless, enabled him to render a work that was effective because he was perfect. But that's not where the author stops in our text. And this is where we should be jolted. And this is where we have to really work really hard, as if we'd never seen the text before. If you're reading this for the first time, it's going to jolt us. It's going to lift us off the seat. This one who knew no sin was made sin. Uh, the work of Christ is effective because Jesus was made sin. The work of Christ is effective because Jesus was sinless. The work of Christ is effective because Jesus was made sin. It sounds contradictory, doesn't it? But it's really not. We observe from our text that once again that God is involved. Uh, just as God was involved in the display that took place in the wilderness in this showdown between Satan and Jesus, so also God is involved in this display. It says... God made him. For our sake, he, that is God, made him, that is Jesus. Jesus was not made sin by some sinful, selfish, personal indulgence that he engaged in. But Jesus was made sin by an act of God. He who knew no sin was made sin. Now the question that begs to be answered 
is what does it mean that Jesus was made sin? In what way was Jesus made sin? Does it mean that somehow Jesus, as a result of this act, became inherently sinful? Did Jesus constitutionally in his, in his makeup become sin? Did he somehow acquire a new disposition that now results in him having an inclination to go contrary to God? We know that you and I, when we are born into this world, uh, that we are born with a disposition to go contrary to God. We call it a fallen nature. When it says that Jesus was made sin, is that what it means here? That now Jesus has this new capacity, this new inclination, if you will, to go against the Father? Is that what it means? Uh, does it mean that Jesus was, I don't want to say merely, but does it mean that Jesus was just the sin offering? Is that, is that what it means? In what way was Jesus made sin? And I believe we get an insight that helps us with the answer to our question as we look at the next part of their text. It's in the next half of the verse that we get the parallel clause. We get the, the, the next part of the equation. We get the second parallel truth. That in contrast to Jesus being made sin, we who knew sin might become the righteousness of God. The work of Christ is effective because Jesus is sinless. The work of Christ is effective because Jesus was made sin. And the work of Christ is effective because his righteousness becomes our righteousness. We, the likes of us, who knew sin, were made and have been made righteous. So in order to answer the question, in what way was Jesus made sin, we also need to ask the question, in what way are we made righteous? Because there's a parallel structure that's here. Now, to be made righteous means to be declared or to be, have a right standing before God, to be in the right with God. It's the idea that God has ruled in our favor. And because of the death of Christ in our place, God the Father no longer holds us. God no longer holds our sin against us. We who are followers of Jesus this morning, you and I are in the clear before God. Of course, we're talking here about the wonderful doctrine of justification. We have been made righteous. And so the question that needs to be asked and answered is, in what way are we as followers of Jesus righteous? What way are you righteous this morning? And so if I were to say to you, as a follower of Jesus, are you perfect? And you might answer, well, yes. But then you realize that your wife or your husband is right there standing next to you, ready to give you the elbow, your kids are listening, or your mother's listening, and no, no, I'm not, I'm not perfect. Yes, I'm perfect. No, not really perfect. What are we getting at? Of course, it's, the wonderful truth is that as followers of Jesus, God looks at us as having placed us in 
his son. Uh, we, are, we are in him. We are in Jesus this morning. And God has made a legal declaration that the righteousness which belongs to Jesus has been assigned to our account. That we have been placed in Jesus. That's one of Paul's favorite expressions, right? Uh, in him, in Christ. The words of the hymn writer uh, captures part of that truth when he says, near, so very near to God, I cannot nearer be. For in the person of his son, I am as near as he. Um, it speaks about a reckoning that God has done. That God is the great and divine bookkeeper. And in relation to your account and my account, God has looked at it and what he sees is not pretty. Uh, we have a debt that uh, we could never pay. The only thing that we can ever declare is bankruptcy. Unable to pay. A debt of sin that has alienated us from a holy God. And God arranges and carries out a monumental transaction in which our sin, my sin, your sin, all of us as followers of Jesus, our sin is taken and we are credited with the very righteousness of Christ. It's the doctrine of justification. God declares you perfect this morning. God declares you righteous. You are in the clear, in the right with God. Wonderful truth. We do not just have a standing like Adam had before he fell. Sometimes justification is neatly explained as just as if I'd never sinned, and that would be a wonderful reality too. But it's more than that, much more substantial than that. It's not just that we are uh, like Adam before he sinned in the Garden of Eden, but we are even better off than that because we have actually been credited with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. God takes us, takes you, he takes me as his follower, places us in his son, Jesus. And when God looks at us, he looks at us through Jesus. When he sees you and he sees me, he sees Jesus, his son, and Jesus is perfect. Jesus is perfect. He is righteous. And because we are in him, God looks at us through his son, the Lord Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that we're inherently righteous, does it? So that comes back to the tension. That comes back to where the, we get the nudging of the elbows. That doesn't mean that we are inherently righteous, that we no longer sin, or that we are experientially perfect. One day we will be. One day we will no longer sin when we are in the presence of Jesus in heaven with a glorified body and confirmed in his likeness for forever. And we will be done, we'll be rid of sin. Praise God. Absolutely. But that's not yet our experience. But our experience this morning is that we are in right relationship with Jesus if we are a follower of Christ and that the penalty of our sin has been taken care of. God has reckoned us to be credited with the righteousness of Christ and, this is key, and he treats us accordingly. 
We've been credited with the righteousness of Christ, and God treats us accordingly. And that's possible, because just as God has credited us with the righteousness of Christ and treated us accordingly, conversely, he treated Jesus, the perfect Son of God, with our sin, with my sin, with your sin, and God made him to be sin. And notice, he treated him accordingly. He regarded him as such. Jesus, having been made sin, he experienced the full intensity of what it meant for the first time to be separated from the Father. So much so that he would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he went to the cross as the sin offering and poured out his life's blood for our sin as a sacrifice to God. He was made sin and God treated him accordingly. Why? What's the reason? So that we, the likes of you and the likes of me, we who knew sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Uh, talk about a great switch. Uh, talk about a great exchange. Jesus takes your sin. You take his righteousness. Think of it. Our sin gets substituted for his righteousness. Recent preaching podcast, Ministry of Gordon Conwell Seminary, relays the following. The mighty Mississippi River is dredged regularly to keep the channel opening. Enormous shovels scoop sand from the river, place it on barges, and then those barges in turn are emptied along the banks of the river. And so along the river you have these huge piles of sand as the channel is kept open. As you can imagine, few things are as enticing to children as tall, huge piles of sand. But few things are also as dangerous. You see, when the sand piles dry, it leaves a, a crusty, rigid, crusty t uh, surface on the top. Uh, but what you don't see underneath is those large caverns that have formed. Because as the water has seeped out, as that pile of sand is dry, it leaves these huge holes. Uh, you can walk on the top of those piles of sand and have fun. But you can also fall into one of those caverns. And as you fall in, you move the sand all around you, and the sand rushes in to fill the void. And that's exactly what happened. And two brothers who lived near the river were having fun playing on the top of the, one of those piles of sand when it gave way. Uh, they fell in. The sand rushed in. It surrounded them, and they were trapped. And when the boys didn't return home for dinner, the family and the neighbors organized a search party. And they found the younger brother, uh, just his head and his shoulders sticking out the top. 
He was unconscious because of the pressure of the sand constricting around him. So they quickly dug down and around his waist so that he could breathe easier and he revived. And when he did, they shouted, Where is your brother? And the boy replied, I'm standing on his shoulders. The older brother gave his life so that the other younger brother could live. It was the only way. It was the only way. And today, as followers of Jesus, we stand on him. We stand on his shoulders because it is the only way. And each of us are invited this morning to come and to stand on him to stand on his shoulders, to come and bow the knee before him, acknowledging Jesus as our Savior, our only Savior, and experience his forgiveness and new life in him. That's the invitation and the appeal of the gospel. Come stand on him. Stand on his shoulders. God's salvation is not a meritocracy. We're not saved. We're not declared to be in right relationship to God because of things that we do, because of what we have to offer. But God's salvation this morning is all on the merits of his grace and his mercy. I remember back in seminary days and finishing an evangelism course and being somewhat shocked and surprised that the final exam was as difficult as it was. Time was up. The teacher called our attention. The prof did. He said, I want you to turn your papers over. Turn it over. He says, on the back, he said, I want you to write this. Remember, this is evangelism. How are we declared to be in right relation to God? I declare, or pardon me, I accept the declaration of your paper that's perfect. You got that? I accept the declaration of this paper is perfect. He said, if you agree with that statement, sign your name. What intrigued me was the response. Some of us, like it was a tough exam. We couldn't write our names fast enough. There were questions. What are you saying? No, it's self-evident. You can't do that. It's your choice. I accept your declaration of this paper as perfect. Do you agree with that statement? Sign your name. Some of us signed it. Several didn't. You can't do that. This morning, God offers us his appeal to accept his declaration of you as perfect. You agree with that? Sign your name. Signing your name means you bow the knee. You agree that Jesus is the only Savior. You agree that you'll never make it. You can never earn it. 
you come to him for forgiveness of your sins and receive new life from him. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we, the likes of you and me, might be made the righteousness of God in him. He did that because it was the only way. And as followers of Jesus this morning, we celebrate realizing that we have been changed because of a great exchange. Jesus takes our sin. We take his righteousness.